it's funny thinking about it now because I haven't been asked that question before, so I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but I have analyzed it in my head. He made money on, on snacks. He made money on the changing tires, oil, all the extra. He didn't make money on the gas. He made money on the other stuff. So the gas was a loss leader. The, the, the high margin was candy bars. And the high margin was Coca-Cola. The, the high margin was the garage where people would fix their cars. And so I, I always kind of, as, as a CEO and entrepreneur, I would always look at the business and say, okay, where's my loss leader? Where's my high margin? And it's the same idea. How am I creating enterprise value? I don't want to sell gas. I want to sell gas stations. So I, I just had the same, I, I hadn't really thought about that. I learned it from him, but, but in retrospect, I did. My father passed away when I was, very, when, he was when I was 22. So I was pretty young when, he, when, he, he, when I didn't see him being an entrepreneur anymore. So yeah, those are the things that stuck with me. Darius Mirzajade is a serial entrepreneur and a best-selling author. He spent his childhood in Iran and the US and learned business from watching his dad run gas stations in the US. I love the stories of him selling candy in school to starting a nightclub business while he was in college. And although that business failed, it taught him some very valuable lessons. We also talked about Tony Shea and Halocracy, Elon Musk and Luck wrestling and stay in the game and the interesting story behind his book also if you're listening to this episode i would love to connect with you and this is my quest to understand who my listeners are and how i can improve the podcast to help them in their entrepreneurial journey we can talk about podcasting or writing newsletters or about social media or even networking with influential people so if you would like to connect with me Email me at stevemymarketing at the rate gmail.com. You can just send a hi and I'll send you my calendar. We can have a 30 to 45 minute chat and exchange ideas. And here we go. Thank you, Darius, for being on the show. And for those of us who don't know you, what's your story? So I'm a serial entrepreneur and I've built a couple companies now from startup to my biggest company was about a thousand employees and I just wrote a book that just came out. It's a Amazon number one bestseller called the core value equation. Most people, most of the CEOs that run a thousand person organization are not the people that run the one person organization. They're very, they're different types of people. Typically a person that runs a 500 person organization is different than a 10 person organization. It just takes different skill sets to do it. And the common problem I hear people speaking is, growing a small business is that the culture changes drastically when you move from say five people to 50 people, and then you move to 50 to 500, 500 to 1000. So how do you keep that culture that was there in the beginning till the very end? Yeah. When it's five people, the CEO is the culture. And even when it's 50 people, the CEO is, is that's when it starts to break a little bit because normally you can't have 50 people in one room together. And so in my book, I joke that the minute one wall goes up between, you, you start to get two different cultures if you haven't designed the right culture, essentially. Culture is really just an, is a conglomeration of behavior and expectation. You get the behavior you tolerate and you get the, the results that you, that you allow for in a business. There's a book by Jocko Willick called um, Extreme Ownership. He has a story in that book where he talks about two in, in, in the United States, we have the Navy SEALs, which is a elite 
naval fighting unit and military unit and he they in their training it's called buds which is the name of the training for to become a, a navy seal and he gives an example of seal team i think it's seal team two and seal team six and they're on these boats and they're racing each other and seal team two kept winning first place every time and seal team six kept coming in last place they took the leader from each boat flip-flopped them and then seal team six ended up winning wow first place this is the one that had been coming in last place all day long. So the, the reason that boat changes the culture of that boat changed, the reason that SEAL Team Boat 6 changed the culture is because the leadership had a, diff, had a different set of expectations and then managed the accountability and the behavior to that. Think of it like computer software. If you just wrote code with no intention around a result, what would happen? You probably wouldn't get a very good result. Think of a des industrial design. If I design a, a product, like let's say a phone, iPhone for instance, if they didn't give a bunch of thought around the design, it probably would have lots of issues. Yet in a company, we do that all the time. We build the company, we have no intention around the design of the organization. And then we were surprised when you go from five to 50 people and it's a different type of business. Of course it's different. There was no intention around the design. You have 45 new people involved and you have a, combination of all those different personalities with no design around expectation, no design around behavior. Who knows what the filtering was for recruiting? Who knows what the designer is around management systems? Who knows how one group's being managed versus another? Who knows if there's hypocrisy going on? I was listening to Tony Shea's interview, the founder of Zappos, and sadly he passed away a few days back. Yes. And he was basically saying that his company lost probably more than a hundred million dollars just because they hired the wrong people. They were right people based on the skill set, but they were not a good culture fit. So how common do you see this in companies that you consult or in your own experience of growing your own company? I think it's very common that people have wrong people in the company. Even, even if you like, I was very intentional about hiring very intentional around reference checks, very intentional around the culture, very intentional around the design of the organization. And even then I got it wrong at least one out of three times. So uh, I don't, I think I, I, when I hear people tell me they have under 10% turnover in their company, uh, my first thought is, oh, you must have a lot of people around that you are, that are not good, that you're not willing to get rid of. Yeah. That's my first, that's my first thought when they say that it's like, oh, you have low standards. That's, that's literally like when they, they think they're bragging to me. And I go, oh no, you just have low standards. Like mm. you, to you tolerate lower, I guarantee you they tolerate lower performance. We all have people that are causing damage to our business. The question is, is what are you doing about it? Right. And so when I, I went to Zappos about seven years ago and, and, and Tony Shea actually wrote, a, he was the, he wrote a blurb for my book. So he, right. endorsed, he, he, he endorsed my book. I, I didn't know him that well. I just knew we had mutual friends and, and I sent him my book and asked him to write it. And then he, and I looked up to him I thought he was a, a very, he was a visionary and he was a smart guy. I, I went to Zappos and they had a very unique culture. They, they did holocratic management, which is around not having any, any managers. They had a great business in some ways when he was a, he's a visionary guy, but I remember going there and I thought, Oh, I would never run my business that just because I'm a different type of leader. Well, that worked for him. For him, I think he saw there was some natural, I, I think some people really like that. Now, when he made that change to his business, he had a couple hundred managers quit. 
Why? Because they didn't want to be a part of that. They didn't want to, they didn't want to be part of the experiment. Now, right. ironically enough, he ended up changing that later and okay. he stopped doing holacracy. So it must have not continued. My guess is he didn't like the result either. The UFC is a good, is an example of what I'm talking about. They have some people, they do karate. Some people, they do kickboxing. Some people do wrestling. Some people do traditional boxing, all sorts of mark. So all sorts of different styles of, of fighting. Well, is it just one? Is there just, is if you look at all the champions, are they all the same types of, of fighters? Are they all using the exact same process to win? The answer is no. For, for some people, so different, different styles work for different people. And you, I think as a business owner, you have to pick the style that works for you. And you, but you, but, but you gotta have a style. That's, that's the key. You don't just go out there and say, oh, I don't, oh, I, I don't have any system. I have no style. I do whatever. Everyone just does whatever they want. And, mm -hmm. and it works out. If that's your style, my guess is you won't like the outcome. It's because there's too much waste created. When Tony was talking about how he lost a hundred million dollars, that's just another way of saying that there was lots of waste created, right. right? That's it. Bad decisions, waste. When you lose money or you make less money than you're supposed to, that means more waste was created. That's it. And I want to take a step back and talk about your childhood. Your childhood was spent in some parts in Iran and then you came to the US. So talk to us a little about that dynamic. Well, I was very young when I grew up in, when I lived in Iran, I was only one years old. So I, I, I was born in the United States and I moved back to Iran and when I was one and then I, and then I only lived there for six months and then I moved back to the United States. So, I mean, culturally I grew up American. My father was Iranian though. So I grew up with a culturally an Iranian father and American mother. And I grew up in America around a lot of American people, but also around a lot of Iranians. So yeah, I mean, Iranian culture is a very strong culture. I joke that they're like the Italians of the Middle East. They love food and social and they're, it's a very rich culture. My father was an entrepreneur. So he was the first person that I knew who, who owned his own business. And I grew up working in that business. So for me, all that did was pave the path towards me being an entrepreneur much easier. For some people, I know a lot of people that are entrepreneurs or their parents were not entrepreneurs. So that's, mm -hmm. they had no role model. They didn't have, they didn't watch someone quietly be their own boss or run their own business or deal with the headaches of running your own business. For me, it, not only did I watch someone doing it, I went to work with them. And I worked with, for my dad from the time I was 10 years old. And so it, it was just more of like the norm. So for me to go and start my own business or to become a CEO, that was not a very, that was not a very out, outlandish idea in my family. That was like pretty normal. When I did it, no one questioned it. I started my first businesses when I was a teenager and my family would invest in those business, businesses. And your father came from Iran and he built, I guess, a gas station business in the US starting from scratch. What are the skills that, both of you kids picked up from your father at a very early age about being an entrepreneur and being a solo founder. I mean, my dad, he said a couple of things to me that stuck with me. He, he, one thing he said was uh, he didn't make money selling gas. He made money selling gas stations. So oh. this idea, which is essentially a, a statement around creating enterprise value, right? I mean, that's, that's what he, he, how he figured, he learned that quickly was you don't make the money on the gas. You make the money on the gas station. That was one, one of the areas he made money, the, the, the areas he made money in the business were 
it's funny thinking about it now because I haven't been asked that question before, so I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but I have analyzed it in my head. He made money on, on snacks. He made money on the changing tires, oil, all the extra. He didn't make money on the gas. He made money on the other stuff. So the gas was a loss leader. The, the, the high margin was candy bars. And the high margin was Coca-Cola. The, the high margin was the garage where people would fix their cars. And so I, I always kind of, as, as a CEO and entrepreneur, I would always look at the business and say, okay, where's my loss leader? Where's my high margin? And it's the same idea. How am I creating enterprise value? I don't want to sell gas. I want to sell gas stations. So I, I just had the same, I, I hadn't really thought about that. I learned it from him, but, but in retrospect, I did. My father passed away when I was, very, when, he was when I was 22. So I was pretty young when, he, when, he, he, when I didn't see him being an entrepreneur anymore. So yeah, those are the things that stuck with me. Right. And you said that your family was very, very supportive when you entered on this entrepreneurial space and you started a few businesses while you were very young. So what were those? A couple of businesses when I was like nine years old. I mean, I was always doing little entrepreneurial things when I was a child. So like, I don't know, you, you grew up in India. I don't know if at school, at our schools, we'd have to raise money to, for the school. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. like we'd have to sell candy and stuff like that to our family and friends. Okay. Like the, no, that, that's not the model we used to do. We used to ask people for donations. Yeah. So it's like literally these companies who the, their salespeople are children, which is kind of funny when you think about it. And then, and like, I was like the number one sales salesperson in my school for, for stuff like that. And then when I, and, and then my brother and I actually started a business where we sold candy to the kids, which the parents didn't like that because <laughs> it got shut down by, by our, by our, our principal of our school. The head of the school shut it down. But I mean, it was like a legit business. I was going to, like, I went to wholesalers. I'd buy candy and I'd bring it in these like big bags to school and like <laughs> sell, sell candy on the playground, like, and, and, and on the school bus. Wow. And I got it up to like, and it started with my, my grandparents went to Italy and they came back with like a, a five pound block of chocolate and they gave it to okay. us. And like, we broke it up into these little pieces and sold it for like a quarter and I turned, you know, this gift into like $5. This is like 10, 30 years ago. This is, I was like 30, 32 years ago. So I turned it into like four or $5. And then I took those dollars and went and bought to the store, went and bought more candy and turned the $5 <laughs> to $10. And, and I mean, I was literally like nine years old. And then, wow. we, and then I had my mom take me to the wholesaler and I bought, or I had like $30 when I went to the wholesaler and I bought like, I bought like what I was buying one at a time from the, from the pharmacy. I went and bought the whole case of it. So wow. I mean, it was very entrepreneurial. <laughs> if you think about it, I was scaling a business when I was nine, I didn't run a business for like probably, I was always just doing jobs. I always worked. I didn't really have businesses until I was in college, but I always had jobs. And then, but, and again, there were lots of sales jobs where we get paid commission. So I always, always do jobs where there was commission involved because I wanted to earn more money. And then when I got to college, I started doing like just these like little businesses where I'd sell stuff. The first real business I lost money on was I started a nightclub business in college where we brought in DJs from all over like the United States to, to these nightclubs. And, and that business, I ended up losing about a hundred thousand dollars. Like it, it was a Hollywood, it was in Hollywood, California. Was, how, how did you, how did you arrange, arrange all those DJs to come to that place? I would, I mean, I would book them. There's, it, it's a very big business. Some of these DJs, especially like in the UK or the Spain or Ibiza and stuff like that, like they get paid 
you know, millions and millions of dollars to come to come DJ. Yeah, but um, how did you convince them to come at your place? Because I would assume they were very busy. Oh, I hired them, paid them money. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. No, no. Well, some I did. Some depending on how how popular they were. Some I would just let them play, and they wanted to play somewhere where there would be you know, lots of people, and they didn't have a reputation, or they were they were not a brand name. And then some of them had a brand name. We'd pay them. So we would just organize a the, you know big event and get a thousand people to show up and. And on the and so I started that business, and that was a very interesting business. That was the first business I lost. I, that was the first business I shut down. That I lost money on that. I that basically went. It didn't technically go bankrupt, but it was it, it owed more money than it had. If you had to do it all over again, what are the different things that you would do? Oh, I just wouldn't have done it. <laughs> Why is that? That's not a good business model. I mean, that's one of the things I've gotten. I I think that as an entrepreneur, like some people. It just depends on what type of an entrepreneur you are, but I do think one of the strengths of being a good entrepreneur is you, is you got to figure out what you're good at. And so for me, I'm not very good at doing research, and that's probably a pretty big flaw as an entrepreneur because I won't research it; I'll just go do it and figure it out while I'm doing it. The other thing is, I think you have to enjoy the product. I like that type of music, but I didn't really like going to nightclubs that much. I mean, I didn't mind going, but it wasn't like I would go. It wasn't like that wasn't where I spent all my time. And so that's a good, like typically people that do well in that business spend a lot of time in the nightclubs. Right. So, yeah, I think that's also one of those things where you got to, I heard Elon Musk talking about this actually, where he said, you have to really be passionate about the area of the product you're in or else you're, you're not going to be the best. And I tend to agree with that. And that's actually one of the reasons why I exited my last business. I wasn't very passionate about the product. I like I like leadership development. And I like scaling businesses. I'm passionate about that. I'm not passionate. My business was a real estate finance company. I wasn't really passionate about real estate finance. I actually like real estate a lot, but I don't like real estate finance that much. And I'm good at it. I've done it for a long time. I know it. It's very lucrative, but it's, it's something that wasn't interesting to me, as interesting to me as it was other people. And I could see that. My business was one of probably out of 4,000 companies that was top 40 in the United States in, in its area. The people that were top 10, they were more passionate about, about it than I was. And that's probably why they were top 10. And that's probably why I wasn't. And once you lost money on the nightclub business, did it have any effect on your motivation to start the next business? Yeah. I mean, it was very depressing. So, I mean, I was young, I was 23. So for me, it, it was, it was not, it was just that at that point in my life, I knew I needed to make a change. And then, and then but that when you're that young, you go to bars and restaurants, you're, you're going to bars and nightclubs a lot. So, and once people know that you used to throw nightclub parties, they go, Oh, we should throw a party together. So I just kept, to, I laughed. I said, no, I'll never do that again. Now it's not true. I, I, that's, I, I did say that and I meant it, but I ended up getting it back into the nightclub business very for, for like more like for a hobby. Okay. And that was the difference. I said, no, I don't want to do this where I'm trying to make a lot of money, but I will do it. And, and this is actually what's funny is I never made, made any money when I tried doing it, when I was trying to make money and I didn't have a lot of fun either. So I, I, I spent a lot of time and energy. I didn't make any money. I lost money. And it just wasn't, it wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't very successful. The minute I said, all, I'll only do this if I'm making, if I make money and if I have the most amount of fun, 
And then I designed around that. This is a, actually, I, now that you ask, it's, a, it's, it's funny. I, I just thought of it. I designed the business so that those two things would happen. Okay. I, so at, what ended up happening was it was the first time I ever made money. And I was, I had probably the most fun out of anyone in the whole party. Wow. <laughs> because I just, I, I designed it differently. It was very low overhead. I knew how much money we were going to make before the party even started. And it was designed so that like there was not a lot of expense and I just went and I got free drinks. So I drank the most and, and that was it. <laughs> Everyone knew that I was going to, I expected to make this amount of money and I was going to go and be the life of the party. And so my, my business is my first business that was a real success was twin capital. That business, I, I guessed, I, I kind of guessed, I knew I was going to make money cause I was already making money doing it. And, and I, and I caught a very good market. This was in 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006. And in the United States back then, it was a very good market for my industry that I was in. It was the best until now, right now is the best market that's ever been. That was the best until now, till almost 15 years later. And, and I wrote a good market and it, and what I always say is, is a good market will make a, a stupid person look smart. So <laughs> it hides all the dead bodies. Mm. Tell me about the beginning of your finance lending company, because you're working in the music space and then you entered finance. How did that transition come about? Well, my, when I was in high school, my brother and I worked at a finance company as an after school job. And then we, so he was doing that while I was in university and then, and he, he was working his way up and getting a lot of success. And so, so when I graduated college, he got me a job at the mortgage finance company and, and then we, but we were doing the nightclub business as well. So it was just the first job I had, uh, he had done it since he was 16 years old, was very, was successful at it. And the nightclub business was our first like entrepreneurial business, but that was the first job we had. And then our job became our business. Yeah. And when you started the business, was that your own money from family and friends or did you take a loan or something? The nightclub business or the real estate business? State business. I borrowed money. I had money, but I, I still borrowed money anyway because I wanted to have some savings. So I borrowed uh, $15,000 from my mom. And then I paid, but I paid her back pretty quick. I think within like six months. Wow. Yeah, it was very quick. The business was very successful fast. It made money within four months. Uh, so the problem was that I was giving away half of the profit to some, somebody else who I was working for. Right. So. I said, well, I don't, I said, well, I don't really need that person. I can just do this by myself. And so I did. So that's what I did. Yeah. And I guess I read somewhere that you were into wrestling while you were in, you were in your high school and after high school, but you were a professional wrestler. And so talk to us about that story. Uh, I was so, so in the United States, a professional wrestler is like, for, is like fake wrestling. So okay. amateur wrestling is like Olympic wrestling. Oh. So I, I was an amateur wrestler. I, I wrestled in college and high school. Yeah, I was always an athlete. I mean, I still, I mean, just today I was swimming before I, our, our show. I went sw swim, swam laps in the pool. Most, most wrestlers, they always, their last match is, is, is one they lose. So it's a very humbling sport because the other thing is, is it's fit in lots of sports. Like I played soccer when I was a kid or football, as you guys call it in the UK. So I played so football, soccer. I played lots of sports. Yeah, those are team sports and, and there's, there's an element of fun. They're pretty, they're, they are actually pretty fun. 
Wrestling is not a very fun sport uh, until you're the best. Like it, mm -hmm. and until you're the top 10%. But the reason for it is that it's the only sport that you actually get beat up while you're, when you're not, you, when you're not. So let's say you're better than 50%, but you're worse than 50%. That means every two times you wrestle, one time you get beat up and one time you beat someone up. So like right. it's, but if you actually get beat up, you're like someone actually beat you up. So <laughs> that's a pretty bad punishment for being bad. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that's well, well, right. So it's the, the, the cost of not being good is high. High. Yeah. <laughs> it would be like starting a business and half the time you, you lose all your money. Like right. the stakes are high. Whereas soccer or basketball, it's like, Oh yeah, we lost by one point. It was close. Like, <laughs> Like physically you didn't get beat up. You just morally got beat up. It, there's a difference. So wrestling is an interesting sport. It attracts a very unique type of personality because you have to be willing to get beat up and like you get your ass kicked until you're good. Like, and so I always say it's a nice right. for entrepreneurism because I think right. some people get lucky when they're entrepreneurs. Like you hear about a lot of these like people that are like, like, uh, like I'll use like Elon Musk as an example. Like people like, mm. They like to say he's a visionary, he's a genius, but his first business he went, he went into, he sold it, he made $20 million on it. His first business. Is right. it because he was brilliant 20 year old? No, it's because it was the dot-com boom and everyone, and he got out at the right time. And he right. took all that money and put it into this thing called x.com that ended up becoming PayPal. Now that's two for two. He's two for two in that business, right? right? Then he takes all that money and puts it in three businesses, Solar City, SpaceX, and Tesla. By the way, all three of them almost went bankrupt. All three. Right. Like yeah. literally they should have gone bankrupt, but the government stepped in and subsidized one of them because he got lucky, right? Yeah. And then he used that money to make the other two successful. So sometimes it's better to be lucky than to be good, right? And right. what I've learned, my biggest lesson I've learned in entrepreneurism is you don't have control over winning sometimes, but you have control over whether you're going to be in the game or not. Right. So, so you got to fight to be in the game constantly. And if you, if you fight to be in the game long enough and learn enough from your mistakes, sometimes you get lucky, like crazy for like, you look like the smartest person ever, but you didn't do anything. The only thing you did is you were in the game and right. it just happened that anyone that was in the game got very lucky if they were at the right place at the right time doing the right thing, it, they could have just as well been in the right, wrong place at the wrong time doing the right thing and got killed. And so I think that the best entrepreneurs realize that half of it's luck, half, right. like 50% chances, it's like flip a, flip a coin, heads, tails, you don't know. 50% of it's luck. You're not in control of that part of it. You're in control of being there. There's plenty of things I don't have control over. Like COVID is an example. Nobody had control over COVID, right? Yeah. And some people who had great businesses got fucking killed. They're getting killed right now. They're going to, like, I have friends that own hotel companies. Like, not, like, like, they won't return my phone calls. I know why. They don't want to talk to me. They don't want to talk about business. They don't want to talk about their life right now. They'd rather just, like, that I'm not a conversation they want to have. Because they're dealing with their own stuff right now. And they're just at the wrong place at the wrong time. They're smart. Mm -hmm. They built amazing businesses. But if you own a airline, a, a cruise company, a hotel business or business travelers, Uber drivers, there's a list, restaurant workers, yeah. like they didn't do anything wrong. They were just at the wrong place at the wrong time. 
that's not a business you want to be in if there's pandemics. That's it, right? So right. now the control they have is do they want to stay in that business? Because guess what? There might be another pandemic three years from now. We're not even through this one yet. Let's say we get through, we get through this one in the next year. Five years from now, when there's another one, what happens to those businesses? Same thing is going to happen. Right. So the decision I would be making if I was in those businesses is what can I do to mitigate that risk? How can I essentially blend other business models in? How can I change my business model? Or how can I just get into a different business because I don't want to be in this business? Mm -hmm. Or how can I take advantage of this? Because if I'm not liking this business, I bet you my competitors aren't liking this business either. Right. So, so and, and, and I'll tell you what, there's, a, there's something to be said that, hey, when businesses get disrupted this hard, there's power in being the last guy standing. Those guys right. usually make a killing, right? So that's the play. But I would be thoughtful of all those things. And so I, I think that that's where people, I learned that. My business, the mortgage business I was in imploded very badly in 2008. The whole industry, mm -hmm. three out of four companies in my industry went out of business in the whole industry. 300,000 yeah. out of 400,000 people went out, left the industry. So I learned, I watched it. I said, oh, the people that were the most successful, they were the last men standing. They're all billionaires now. And, and you wrote this book, Core Values Equation. Were you always writing stuff down as an entrepreneur? No, he, I was always a writer, hmm. but I, I always wrote books, but, or not books. I always wrote articles and I'd write to my team. I did a talk. I, I did a keynote talk on it. And a bunch of people at the end of the talk kept asking me like, oh, is there a book I could read that will teach me this? I said, nope. All up here. They said, oh, and then like the next person asked me and the next person asked me and the next person asked me. And then finally the fifth or sixth person asked me and I said, oh yeah, it's coming out in June. And this was like in November of the previous oh. year. And so then I was like, okay, it looks like I'm writing a book now. So, and so yeah. what, what was your process of writing that book and going through the publishing process and marketing it? How different was it from running a traditional business? Oh, it's, it's, it's a different, it's a completely different experience. It's, First of all, writing a book financially is you cost you money. It does, you don't make money off of writing a book because it's, 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 it's a very low barrier to entry. Right? Right. Like any, anybody can get into it. It's very competitive. And, and there's lots of, comp, uh, since there's, there's lots of noise because there's so many books out there. Right? Right. And, there's, and every day, more and more books, the de supply of books keeps increasing. I've, the friends I know that have had successful books, they all say it's a five-year investment of time. And, and so what I find is it's a pretty big investment of, of time and energy and even money, whereas right. bit, with, with no guarantee of return, most, you wouldn't do that in most businesses. The positive is, is that now once you write a book, you write a book. Like no one could take that away from you. It's something that you have, like when I'm dead, that book will still be around. You know? Right. And it's, there's plenty of authors that are dead that we read their books and they make their, it's a long lasting legacy. So, so yeah, that's, I, I don't think, I think they're very different. I think that you should write a book because you want to write a book, not for f financial gain. And just, and I think that starting a business, I would never start a business if I didn't see the financial upside. So right. it's, it's just a different, it's a different, it's just a different project. Yeah. And you have your own show as well, where you talk to entrepreneurs. So what is your idea behind that show? Why are you doing it? Again, like for me, I, everything I'd always done had, had everything to do with, with making money. And so for me, the show was something like, for me, it's more around learning and connecting with people. And there's value around building 
some of it's entrepreneurs, some of it's not. It's, it's usually, the, the, the show's called The Greatness Machine. So it's really all about people that are living their passions to create greatness in the world and people that have done cool things. And, and I'm a learner, so I love learning from people. I've done, a, I, I started the show in July, uh, July 8th, and I've done a yeah. uh, hundred shows so far. Yeah, so, if, so for that reason, it's, it's been cool. I've, I've just met a lot of really interesting people and learned a lot. And a lot of these people, if I said, hey, I want, can I spend one hour with you and just learn all about all the things, you, I'd probably have to pay them like $10,000 for that hour. And for a lot, uh, for sure, some of them, they'd probably just tell me no, even if I offered them $10,000. Like if you called me up, I mean, we don't know each other, but if you said, hey, can I just have an hour and I just want to like ask you a bunch of questions, I'd be like, no, yeah. like, I'll, give you ten, I'll give you 10 minutes if you want, or 15 minutes of my time, which I, I'll give anyone. I always say I'll give anyone 10 or 15 minutes of my time. But beyond that, it's like I'm busy and I have stuff that I'm doing. And that's, there's got to be a reason why I'm connecting with people. Right. Yeah. I was, I was reading this tweet the other day, which said that 2010 was grab a coffee and 2020 has come up on the podcast. Wait, what did they say about 2010? Can I grab a coffee with you? Oh yeah, what are you? Can I can I have you on my podcast? <laughs> <laughs> that is basically a hack of connecting with people. It, it is. I mean, yeah. it's true. It's true. Like you were just telling me who you had on your show. Like, I, like that, that's funny. I, I, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have Jesse Jesse on my show. The, like the banana, the yellow text guy. Jesse's episode was very good, and several people called me and said they enjoyed the episode because Jesse's a very entertaining guy, and he's all these awesome stories. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I started following him. Uh, uh, like he's funny because uh, he owns that professional sports team. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah they, and they do crazy stuff with that team. <laughs> Savannah's bananas. 